Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a huge pleasure for me to uh, welcome you all uh, here to the school. And it's marvellous to see so many. It's wonderful. Um, as some of you may know, I'm uh, Judith Rees, and I'm the first female director of LSE. Uh, Now, I thought that was a reasonable achievement, <laughs> but it pales into insignificance when compared to those of our speaker. Uh, she was the first woman in Chilean, and indeed in, in, in Latin American history, to hold the ministerial portfolios for health and defense, which strikes me as a remarkable uh, pair, actually, <laughs> linked together. She then went on to be the first Chilean president from, 19, uh, from 2006 to 2010. And then, if that wasn't enough, she went on to the next first as the first head and, and executive director of UN Women. And it really is beginning to look a bit like a female conspiracy because uh, last week, I welcomed Slovakia's first female Prime Minister. Next week, we have Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first woman on the US Supreme Court. And if you look at our website, you will see a whole series of, um, um, of lectures with speakers who are very prominent women in their own uh, areas. So it's a particular pleasure to welcome Michelle back to uh, LSE. She spoke here two years ago as president of Chile and now returns as the head of uh, UN Women. Now, UN Women was established uh, last July to lead and support and coordinate work on gen gender equality and the empowerment of women. I'm not going to go through Michelle's achievements as minister and president. They are far too many. But there's one I'm going to quiz her about, uh, because I'd like to learn from it, is how on earth did she leave presidential office with an approval rating of 80%? Right. <laughs> now, I know uh, Michelle is not speaking as a Chilean tonight. But I have to say that uh, I'm amazed at her going to New York, because Chile, to me, is one of the most wonderful countries that I know. It's a geographer's dream <laughs> with an enormous amount of variety. And the wine isn't bad either. <laughs> so can I thank our two uh, school, school departments, the Gender Institute and the, and the Department of International Development, for hosting uh, this event. I've been told by Alan, uh, for those who Twitter, uh, which you probably gathered I'm not one, <laughs> that the hashtag for this event is uh, LSE UN, uh, 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 UN Women. Okay. So it really is a great pleasure for me uh, to welcome uh, Michelle back, and I invite you to give this lecture. Uh, the lecture will be about 15 to 20 minutes, 
and there will be a question and answer session afterwards. Thank you very much. Thank you, Director Rees. Um, good evening, students, professor, faculties, ladies and gentlemen, friends. Well, thank you for inviting me to speak about UN Women's priorities as well as the challenges that we're facing. And uh, it is a great pleasure to be back at uh, the London School of Economics and in such distinguished company. Last time, as uh, you did mention, I spoke here on my capacity of President of Chile. But this time is as the head of the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment, UN Women for short. If we are successful, I hope, and I hope we are successful, I think we won't be in the future saying the first, the first, the first, the first, and the first, because it will be something natural. And today I'm here to present to what UN Women sees as priority issues in advancing women's empowerment economic, politically, and personally. And I will first lay out my five uh, programmatic priorities, and I will then present in some detail our work in one of these areas, uh, conflict and post-conflict recovery, as it is in this context that we face some of the greatest challenges, as well as opportunities. And it is in conflict-affected states that the threats to women's rights are often the most acute, and where women's empowerment can make the biggest difference for peace and security. In describing what we are doing to bring women's empowerment to the center of the peace and security agenda, I will argue that an approach to peacemaking and peace building that is grounded in gender equality must inescapably be linked to economic and political development strategies that seek to build women's power through economic security and the strength of association. This approach brings us into close engagement with the UN's Peace Building Commission and its Peace Building Support Office. Both of these entities were, like UN Women, established fairly recently as part of the UN reform process, and both these make an, the connection between the security and the development work of the United Nations. Ladies and gentlemen, in outlining these five priority themes, it is important to note that these have been affirmed through comprehensive consultations with member states, civil society, and UN partners. We have held consultation in more than 100 countries because we needed to learn from our partners how UN women can accelerate progress on gender equality. And I have personally met with government leaders, women's rights, and other civil society organizations, and their feedbacks informs and supports the selection of our five priorities, specifically women's economic empowerment. I truly believe that if women have economic autonomy, there really will be, I mean, they can have real uh, rights, achieve gender equality and, and women's rights. But we need women who have incomes, who have make more decisions, and choices, but also that their voices have been heard and they can contribute to the reshaping of their societies. So that's why I believe it's so important too 
political empowerment on, in other words, women's political voice, participation, and leadership. But of course, we know that a big tragedy in many countries is violence against women, even in this country. Violence, domestic violence is a huge issue. So we need to continue working on ending violence against women and girls. And of course, as I already mentioned, engaging women and women's rights fully in national development planning and budgeting, and of course, in peace and post-conflict processes. When I'm talking about the importance of engaging uh, in national planning and budget planning is because I think nobody will say ever that don't agree on gender equality, on women's empowerment. But we need to pass from rhetorics to action. And we need to give women real options in terms of, and, and really relevance in terms of the decision-making processes. That's why planning with budgeting isn't essential. I have seen many wonderful national action plans, but very little implementation of those. In all of these areas, we will prioritize the provision of high-quality support for UN intergovernmental processes, ensuring that, on one hand, the normative part, norms, standards, on, and policies on gender equality, the empowerment of women men, and gender mainstreaming, are more, if I may say, comprehensive, but also more dynamic. And our approach to peace and security begins with the Security Council Resolution 1325, that we celebrated last year 10 years of the resolution. The resolution not only recognized the impact of war on women, it also highlighted something very important, the positive contribution that women make to peacemaking, conflict resolution, and a long-term peace building. As such, the focus was on resources for peace, not the perpetrators of violence. It acknowledged that the differential impact of conflict on women and men requires a gender-specific set of responses to their needs during and after conflict. And Resolution 1325 was driven by a recognition that the nature of warfare was changing, a fact that has been highlighted by distinguished researchers here at the LSE, such as Mary Calder and others. The majority of wars since 1945 have been internal civil wars. Many of them are ethnic conflicts where the fight is not necessarily about expanding national territory, but instead over controlling who counts as a national. Weapons of mass destruction are still a major threat, but new localized versions have built and developed. Mass population flight and complete decimation of communities can be accomplished with systematic sexual violence. Civilians, not combatants, are the targets. Indeed, a former UN force commander Mayor General Patrick Kamer remarked that, and I will quote, it is possible more dangerous to be a woman than a soldier in conflicts today. So in the past three years, however, the Council had adopted several new resolutions concerning sexual violence in conflict. Resolutions 1820, 1888, and 1960, each stronger than the last, show an unprecedented degree of Council concern with a phenomenon of sexual violence used as tactic of warfare. And thanks to this resolution, there is now a special representative on sexual violence in conflict, Ms. Margot Wallstrom, with whom UN Women collaborates closely. A variety of different trust, not trust, 
truth and reconciliation processes are attempting to heal past wounds to prevent future recurrence. The International Criminal Court is gradually asserting that there is no place for war criminals and mass human rights um, abusers to hide, not even in their own countries, but for the majority of the victims and survivors of conflict, particularly women, there is still little immediate redress, little direct engagement in national and local decisions about making peace and building the future. For the most part, the Council has concentrated primarily on the protection elements of women, peace and security agenda, driven by the horrific incidents of sexual violence in conflict and the threat it presents to national recovery. The risk is, however, that if we focus exclusively in women as victims, not as agents of peace, we will fail to invest in a major driver, driver of recovery, which is women's leadership for peace building. So when we think on the other component of the 1325 resolution, because one, of course, is uh, protection of women, but the other is women as agents of peace. The participation component of 1325 sometimes probably is neglected partially because it requires to engage in a, I would say, unfamiliar challenge, that is women's empowerment. The exception is Resolution 1889 on women's participation in peace building. This resolution has enabled important advances within the UN peace building architecture to ensure better attention to women's needs in recovery, but it has also triggered some of the approaches that I will cover tonight. The one critical, foundational element of peace building that lacks women contribution is the crucial process of peacemaking itself. Our own research into 24 peace processes since the mid-90s show that women's average less than 8% of negotiating delegation, a proportion, ironically, that seems to have gone down since the adoption of Resolution 1325 10 years ago. And while opinions differ as to whether women bring a particular quality of consensus building to peace talks, the one thing that women indisputably bring to peace process, given the chance, is an insistence that their own priorities should be addressed in the governance, justice, security, and recovery aspects of a peace agreement. And these priorities, including quotas for women in post-conflict elections, equal land and property rights, or an end to impunity for perpetrators of sexual violence, can help build a more sustainable peace. So I would like to share with you four reasons why women's participation builds a better peace. First, because women participation broadens the peace process to larger constituencies beyond the fighting parties. This engages not just the people with guns, the spoilers. It engages the people who can ensure broad social acceptance of an, and commitment to the peace deal. In other words, the survivors, those who invest in peace. Second, women's specific concern, if answered, can help speed a more rapid return to the rule of law. Often impunity enjoyed by perpetrators in war has a, if I may say, contagion effect, triggering high levels of sexual violence after conflict. Failure to signal zero tolerance through immediate prosecution of commanders who either organize or condone sexual violence can encourage others to commit these crimes. A free-for-all 
when it comes to crimes against women will make a complete mockery of efforts to assert the return to the rule of law. And as the journalist Anne Jones says, and I will quote her, for women, the war is not over when it's over. End of quoting. However, only six ceasefires for 45 conflict situations since 1989 have mentioned sexual violence as a prohibited act. That means that sexual violence continues after the guns fall silent. And if the war is not over for women, peace cannot start for them or their children. Third reason, women's participation in all aspects of peace building, including disarmament processes, transitional justice, constitutional reform commissions, and the like, will ensure that a greater diversity of views is reflected in decision making. And this is good for the quality of the decision making, but it's also good for democratization. Fourth, attention to women's needs in recovery resources, <coughs> such as access to a departed spouse's land and property, can help to speed economic recovery. Conflict, like any crisis, produces a surge of female-headed households. If they was, these women have no livelihoods, they are pushed into low-reward, high-risk work, deepening their poverty. With some degree of economic security, they are faster to invest in child welfare and education, faster to build food security, and faster <coughs> to rebuild rural economies. Given the benefits of women's participation to the quality of governance, rule of law, and recovery, it is unacceptable that they remain marginalized from peace talks and recovery. And this has to change. This year, World Bank World Development Report on Conflict, Security, and Development argues that the keys to successful peace building lie in citizen security, addressing justice, and creating employment all of which are also fundamental to economic development, good governance, and political legitimacy. We argue that if women could be fully engaged in peace building, there would be a much lower rate of relapse into conflict. Why is this? To restate what I mentioned earlier, if security institutions address women's security during and after conflict, they would help prevent the impunity that undermines efforts to reestablish the rule of law. So this is what peace building is, after all, all about. In the realm of justice, if sexual violence in conflict is not tried as a war crime, and its victims do not receive reparations, then the rule of law is weakened, and women's citizenship rights are profoundly undermined. In the realm of economic recovery, if women are not given land rights and support for recovering livelihoods, rural recovery, and in particular, food crop recovery will be delayed. Finally, in governance, if women are engaged in public decision making and employed in the public administration, we would see more diversity expressed in policy making and more attention to community and family needs. If we put women at the center of security, justice, economic recovery, and good governance, peace dividends would be delivered more rapidly to communities and the massive challenges of what is often called building back better would be addressed. Now, if, if this is so evident to policymakers, why is it not translated into adequate investment in women? Our research shows that only slightly over 5% of the so-called multi-donor trust funds in post-conflict countries is dedicated to supporting women's empowerment or in advancing gender equality. Post-conflict 
needs assessments often recognize women and men's different needs for resources in recovery process. Yet, and that's it, you can find it anywhere. Yet when the analysis converts to budgets, again we see less than 5% of proposed funding targets women's specific needs. UN Women is partnering with the Department of Political Affairs and other UN entities to increase the number of women at the table and to ensure that their issues are addressed, including through more women mediators or more gender experts on mediation teams. What if just a fraction of what we currently spend on disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration were spent on providing women with access to land, credit, and training? We know that there are important differences between how men and women spend money. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but women spend 90% of their incomes, men 30 and 40% of their income in family. With uh, migrant people, it's the same. If we, if we know this difference, how women and men spend money, would we see a more rapid rate of recovery in rural communities? What if? There were significant investments in community security so that women can resume farming and market activities without fear of attack. Would we see more families prospering or more women running the local council? Women, if it, it is well known, invest the majority of their income in their families, leading to more kids in school, houses repaired, healthier families, and food security, nutrition security. We, need that women, we know that women can make a massive difference to sustaining peace. For this to happen, women cannot be added to conflict resolution as an afterthought at the last minute. The same is true of current transitions to democracy in North Africa. Leaving women's participation to the end is disastrous, not just for women, but for the whole sustainability of peace and democracy. Women cannot be credible participants if they are brought into a process where the rules have already been agreed without them. It can create thousands of communities harboring deep resentment or plotting revenge. Just as women need temporary special measures in political competition to compensate for histories of social and political exclusion, so too in economic recovery, special provisions are needed to ensure women's access to recovery resources. Last year, we worked with the UN's Peace Building Support Office to develop a seven-point action plan on gender-responsive peace building. And the commitment include a requirement that at least 15% of UN expenditure in conflict and post-conflict situations be devoted to investments in women empowerment and gender equality. Mechanism for providing appropriate gender expertise to peace talks and post-conflict state building initiatives, including technical assistance on the use of temporary special measures, such as quotas to increase women's representation, <coughs> and institutional changes to advance women's empowerment through economic recovery and rule of law interventions. The measures specify that at least 40% of the jobs offered through temporary employment programs should go to women. If we look at that, we could say, they're not so ambitious goals. They're modest goals, to be sure. But if they were met, we estimate that current levels of investment in women's empowerment post-conflict would triple. The numbers of jobs available to women post-conflict would go up exponentially. 
So let me finish by sharing with you and quoting the words of a survivor of multiple gang rapes by armed groups in Eastern Congo, a woman who currently runs a shelter for rape survivors. At a public hearing about reparations conducted by the Office of a High Commissioner for Human Rights in Congo last year, she told an audience of her fellow citizens, what reparation do I want? I do not want money. The only reparation I want is that you see, you all see rape not, not as my problem, but your problem. Gender discrimination and violence against women is everyone's problem. Gender equality is in everyone's interest. It will serve our mutual interest in development, respect for the environment, and peace. So I welcome all of you to join us in this effort to advance women's rights, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Okay, well, we have, uh, I think, plenty of time for uh, questions. And um, would you please uh, say who you are and where you are from? Because obviously, with this sort of audience, we can't possibly know. Okay, the, the first questions. Um, and I don't know most of you, so I'm going to have to say, the gentleman there with, with glasses is number one, the uh, lady with blue on the thing is number two, and the lady down here. So I, I'll pick you up uh, next time. Okay. So there's a gentleman in the middle with glasses. Okay. He's a woman, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I don't know. My problem is I, I <laughs> can't see the text or I can't see you. I need new glasses. Right. It's all right. Okay. Um, I'm just curious in terms of empowering women to meet in terms of empowering women to meet new challenges, um, is it facing any kind of resistance, this kind of, this effort? And if so, where is that resistance coming from? Okay, yeah, we'll take three at a time. Okay, Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Um, okay, you, you were talking about how providing jobs, credit, and training to women would contribute to the conflict resolution and gender equality. Um, my question is, in the 90s, when NAFTA came to Mexico, women in the border town of Ciudad Juarez were empowered, financially empowered. They got jobs, training, and credit. And with this came a series of murders against women sexual violence of the worst kind, atrocities, in a wave that hasn't stopped since. So my question is, what will UN women do about this kind of violence that comes precisely with financial independence for women and empowerment? Thank you. Okay, and then the, the last of this round down at the front. Thank you. I'm a Chilean journalist representing CNN in Chile. And I need, I need to ask you something regarding what's happening in Chile now. Uh, no. <laughs> no. 
Well, it's uh, your vision regarding Idraisen project. No, excuse me, because no. I'm not here as a Chilean. I'm here as the, the UN. Uh, as a UN. Yeah, I think okay. that's a as a UN, I cannot speak about Chilean issues. That's okay. a, I think sorry, that's but a, the rules are the rules. Okay, so one other. Right, I am. Am I right this time? It's a gentleman at the back. Right. Okay. Um, yes. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, was, I wanted to ask you about the specific uh, plight and the, and, and the vision UN Women has about indigenous women all around the world. As you know, indigenous women are suffering as the poor, the poorest, the most discriminated, and, and, and they're at the bottom line of all sorts of uh, indicators on property, etc. What do you think, or what are you going to do with respect of uh, indigenous uh, women's rights? And, and especially, uh, what do you think about uh, the plight of the Mapuche women? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's um, take those. Can okay. you take those? Okay. okay. Can I remind people to say who they are and where <laughs> they're from? Okay. Yes, sorry, my name is Alonso Barros. Um, I'm here working as a fellow at LSE, and I'm researching these issues. Okay, thank you. Well, as, as I said during my remarks, I don't think anybody speaks against gender equality or women's empowerment. Uh, and everybody on the contrary says that women are key for sustainable development. I was in Istanbul in the fourth conference of uh, least developed countries. And it's so clear there, like in everywhere, that if you don't, you're not able to empower women to be a more relevant actors of change, sustainability and development will not come soon. On the other hand, those are countries, the majority with, where the productive capacity is on agriculture. And we know exactly what we could do in terms of ensuring those women, they do, normally do, the agricultural force. What difference it would be if they had the land, uh, land property rights? Because many of them, because of uh, lack of laws, they, they are widows and cannot inherit. His eldest son, if they have a son, inherits the land. If he doesn't have a son, you only have daughters, it will go to the brother of the husband or the uncle or whatever, a male. So one of the issues of land property, but more than that, because you can also have workers or a community working on a, co a common field. If you ensure water supply, I mean, to many countries, the problem is water, water, water. Second, if you ensure uh, technical transfer so they can add value to the products. Third, if you can ensure microfinance or some kind of uh, financial uh, system that could help them invest in a better way. Fourth, if we can ensure them storage capacities, because they don't have storage capacity, they have to go to the market and sell as soon as possible the product in a very bad, uh, without capacity of negotiating better prices. So if you start looking what happens today, they will never get out of poverty because they can be great producers, but they don't have access to markets, they don't have managerial skills, they don't have uh, technological um, uh, capacity and so on. So if you talk to anyone that is in charge in decision making, they will tell you that that's true. But look at the reality, it's not happening. And the, the thing is, probably, because when we speak about women's rights, it's clearly an issue of human rights, but it's not only a human right. 
it's also an issue of sustainable development. It's also an issue of economic, social, and political investment. So to invest in women, to empower them, but let's not use a word that some, some people feel aggressive. And I'm not talking imaginations. I've heard people say, why don't you change that word empowerment? It's so aggressive. Why don't you change it for entrepreneurship? <laughs> in Spanish, it's similar, but it's not the same either as in English. So uh, nobody will stand up and say, look, I don't like empowerment of women. But very few are doing so. So really empowering them with, for example, quota laws. I mean, we have only 26 countries in the world that has re achieved what the Beijing conference stated as 30% minimal critical mass at parliament, female parliamentarians, so that the concerns they need are really well reflected in the legislation. Only 26 countries in the world. Of them, only five had, have a need quota or any, how could I say, affirmative action. So you might be for or against quota, and that is a very uh, interesting discussion. But the thing is that it doesn't happen if you don't think on affirmative action, affirmative measures. Transitional, until you don't need anything else because it's natural, you see? So in, economic, in economy, the same happens. I mean, we have so many women at the grassroots organization. We don't need to empower them there. In every organization are women, you know, doing everything. In normal situation, in disaster relief, in everything, there are women elsewhere, but they're not at the decision-making positions. So what is need to be done? I think, first of all, in my case, what we are working is on building a stronger case that women's rights are human <coughs> rights, but are also a very important economic social and political case why investing women is not only the right thing to do, but the smartest thing to do. And I think we have a very important momentum because the issue that UN Women was created is linked to many things. First of all, if you look at the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, the ones that are related to women are the slower process, progress. I mean, the MDG number three, uh, I mean, all the MDGs have women and, or, or gender uh, uh, content, but particularly number three, empowerment of women. What we see is that we have decreased the gap between girls and boys' access to education. It could be bad, but for everybody, because it's an issue of poverty, but not because of a discrimination issue. In health, the same. Women and boys are, I mean, still a little bit more boys than girls in education. In health, it's sort of a similar thing. But in economic empowerment and access to economic uh, uh, possibilities, and in, it's very bad. And what to say about political? In political, it's the worst. Only 19 female head of state or head of government. That is less than 10%. Only 19% of female uh, representative in parliament. But we have 19% average because we have 56% in Rwanda, 44% in South Africa. 33% in Nepal, just to mention some of them. But in some others, 0% or 01, 02. So we are really far from where we should be. And when you look at ministries, only 5% of the ministers of the world are female. And clearly that's not represent, represent the gender or uh, 
I would say, distribution in the population. In many of these countries, women are 53, not only 50, more than 50%. So we need to empower men. On the other hand, if we look at the most terrible things that's happening in today's world and that are also represented on the MDG 4 and 5, maternal mortality. I mean, where people are happy and they say, oh, we have decreased in the last decade. Maternal mortality, yes, we decrease. But we are now with 350,000 deaths in pregnancy or giving birth. 350,000, I mean, in a century when we all know how to prevent exactly we know, I mean, this is not talking about a new epidemic when where the AH1N1 came and nobody knew what was it about, how little it was, and so on. No, we're talking about something that is natural, physiological, bringing child to the world, and still so much women dying. So we, we need to do much more about that. But it looks like still the people who are making decisions are not convinced. Or still happens that sometimes rhetorics replace action. And we need, and that's our job, not to do what others have to do. We're not going to replace the governmental activities. We can help, we can strengthen, we can bring technical capacity, but it's governments who have to do their role. And what we are going to do while we continue working is making advocacy working on mainstreaming, because also women's issues and empowerment of women is not the job of the Minister of Foreign of uh, Gender Equality. It has to be transversal, cross-cutting. And if you don't do it that way, you will never get it because the so-called from Beijing gender, no, uh, national women machineries, ministers, and are usually the less powerful politically and clearly under-resourced, unless there is a huge commitment from the head of state or head of government on that. So we need to work much more on convincing with evidence. And that's one of the things we want to do with the universities and with the commission is to try to produce more evidence. Because if human rights is not the reason why you are going to do it, at least do it because it's a smart thing to do. It's the best investment to do. So we need to produce more, more data showing it is, there's a lot of them. But we need to, I mean, we need, and that's something probably my experience will help on that. I'm not going to do my miracles, but that will help, is to try to put us on the shoes of the decision making. Because people who are in politics, at different level, a mayor, uh, a governor, or, 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 or a, a president, or a minister, or a parliamentarian, has so many needs, so many things they have to do, and little money. So we need to build a very strong case for gender equality and women's empowerment, and to really show them why to invest in women is the best thing that they can do. So I cannot name and shame who is against empowering women, but can I tell you it's, it's, it's difficult because everybody is saying the politically correct thing. But I mean, in many places they're doing a lot. But you also have the other possibility. People who want to do more don't know how to do it. So we are going to work with those countries too. And also we are going to provide some resources because we don't have endless resources particularly to those countries who are least developed, 48 least developed countries, uh, 33 in Africa, one in Latin, the region of the Americas, Haiti, 
and the rest in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, to, uh, in those cases, we need to not, UN women, I mean the whole UN system, to work much more to try to produce uh, a big, bigger impact on women's and girls' life. You mentioned the, who was it? Ciudad Juarez situation, but I think you made a very, how could I say, audacious uh, statement that women's murder was because they were in power financially. And I do not believe that we can make that cost-effect relation, at least not of the information that I have. And I do not know either, so I cannot discuss on this, how was it before? Is it bigger the murders now, or we have more information now? It's more open. Is it uh, financial, uh, empowering women the reason that led to this uh, homicide, or is that uh, there, uh, that the region itself is, is confronting terrible security threats, different security threats in terms of human trafficking, drug trafficking, gun, uh, organized crime? I don't have the concrete information to tell you why this happened, but I have to tell you whatever happens, we, we don't need to see, we cannot see empowering women as a threat. Because women, when they are empowered economically, politically, are in the better position to respond to violence, are in a better position to organize and not to be alone. I cannot speak to you specifically on the Sudahuari situation, because I have some information, but not all, so I, I wouldn't be serious to, to answer you that. But seriously, I do believe that no matter what, it's important to give women opportunities to, to, to really be able to live their lives as they deserve, and that needs to uh, empower them. Um, but I do think <coughs> we need to tackle those other things. That's why, for me, the Resolution 1325 speaks about conflict and post-conflict countries. But when I'm thinking on the criteria that I'm presenting the member state on where you and women should put bigger efforts or strengthening or, or expanding if it's necessary, it will be in countries where uh, women's, all the indicators of women equalities, uh, gender equality are very low, like maternal mortality, uh, uh, political participation, like uh, economical uh, p participation, and so on. Uh, of course, there is this index on that the UNDP developed its so-called Human Development Gender Inequality Index, and so it usually they're all related: you know? poverty, maternal uh, mortality, and so on. And uh, the second uh, group of countries is the LDCs, the least developed countries, because they usually are the ones who have the same situation and less resources, financial and also human resources many times, to deal with those issues. Third, countries with conflict, conflict, but we, I am going to include, and that's something that the ministries of Central America have asked me to do, is not only look at conflict and post-conflict in the traditional way, but also look at parts of the world where human trafficking, 80% women and, and, and girls, for sexual slavery and labor, labor slavery, uh, to include them. Because otherwise, Latin America is a victim of their successes. And they never meet the requirements. And they're always out of the, of the possibility of giving resources to them. But they have huge issues there that are affecting everyone, but particularly women and, and, and girls. And of course, uh, drug traffic and so on. So 
I, I understand the issue you that you raised. I'm not sure of what is the cause effect, but we need to work on improving women's security in all these areas. And these areas were, were not traditionally areas of relevance for us, will be relevant to work on. But we are not going to make miracles. We need commitment of government, commitment of civil society, on parliamentarian, because many of these things are terrible complexities. And um, Alonso Barros, clearly from Chile, asked about uh, indigenous women. Well, we are not, uh, first of all, I have to tell you, we work with governments and national partners. We understand national partners as governments, but also civil society, women's organizations. Because, first of all, we cannot work only with the like-minded. That would be very easy, where women have all the rights. No. We cannot work only with the ones who want to work with us. I mean, if the government's not interested in some area, well, we'll try to convince them. We'll try to mainstream, to make advocacy. But we also will work with civil society and women's organization, in the case of UN Women, of course. And every region and every country will define its own national priorities. We're not going to impose anybody something. Of course, if there are violations of, of, of rights, we will be talking of those things and mentioning and trying to change the situation in different ways, sometimes publicly, sometimes privately. It depends on the situation or what is more effective. Uh, and if, uh, and, but of course, in, in Central America in particular, and that's something that is on the regional, we have uh, of, uh, regional offices and they define according their, I mean, you need to work on gender equality and women's empowerment, contextualizing the situation. And in particular in Central America, and not only Central America, Latin America, in all other places too, but it's where I can tell you it is written like a priority is to work on all women who are, have vulnerabilities, and clearly in the region, uh, Aboriginal women. And that, of course, is the case of Chile, as all the other countries are the most vulnerable ones. But I will add, in Latin America, and particularly in Central America, Afro-descendants, where you see, not only in terms of rights as a global, universal concept, but also poverty is there. Poverty is there, maternal mortality is there, uh, tuberculosis, I mean, all the kind of things you have is there. So when we, and how we do work, we don't have much money, we're not a bank, so, and we, everybody loved us, but funding is not coming yet. <laughs> and as good women, I never ask how much money I did have. I read in the newspaper that we, we had approved a budget of $500 million. Approved. Target. Goal. Not money. And I have to fundraise it. And $500 million is nothing to the needs of half of the population. So, but, but the thing is that it, some people say that that's sort of the desert of the creativity. When you don't have money, you find different ways of finding what you need. So we're looking, not only trying to, in, and part of my visit here, is to work, of course, with governments that have been very supportive, I have to say, UK, long-standing support of UN Women. And uh, we, we, we will be working, but specifically, we will be working with countries and with vulnerable groups that need more, but we do not impose what we do. 
is people, governments, and organizations who have to apply to the funds. We have projects on the ground and two funds. The trust fund, that's United Nations Trust Fund, but we manage it on ending violence against women. And the new trust fund, not, not trust fund, fund uh, uh, funded by the Norwegians and Spanish, particularly Spanish, uh, in like 80% um, on gender equality. And the interesting thing is that it's open, everybody can apply. 90% of the application were for economic empowerment. I th no, sorry, on the contrary, political empowerment. And very little on economic empowerment. Why? Probably because women who are less elitist, if I may say, who are powerless, do not have access to internet, do not have access to information. So they don't have access to funds unless they do it through other institutions. So that's one of my things and I have instructed all the organization that as I will do, I will have an advisory board that will advise me from the civil society. If we're doing things right or we need to do much more, they have to do the same in each at country level, regional level, and sub-regional level. But in that advisory group, we need to be sure that people from grassroots organizations are there. Because otherwise, I, we don't want to work only with the elite groups of women. We need to work with all the people, and particularly with the most vulnerable ones. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to take some in the gods, uh, because there have been people patient. Um, person there, and there, and then somebody right at the back. Okay. Hello. Thank you very much. Um, and who are you? My name is Yoletta Nyonge, and I'm a journalist from Rwanda. You have named Rwanda as a case study. And um, um, first of all, congratulations for this uh, appointment. I know that uh, Rwanda's foreign minister, Louise Mushitiwa, was also in the run for the job. <laughs> and, uh, One so of the 26, yes. yes. <laughs> so um, you named Rwanda as being um, a, a case study and you know and really are praising it so Rwanda the parliament in Rwanda has 56% uh, of women which is true um, but those women were not able to stop a law that was passed in February to perform vasectomy on 700,000 men those women suffer from 50% uh, of the children in Rwanda all malnourished Rwanda ranks as, as, as the seventh country with the highest um, maternal, maternal um, rate of, mater of maternal mortality. Rwanda ranks as, as the fifth, uh, in the last, in the 15 last of the um, um, UNDP uh, um, inf um, index. And 75% of uh, Rwandans live below poverty level. And um, so sorry, when I, sorry, can when, we uh, have your question? Yes, when the whole I idea you, is questions yes, rather yes, than speeches. Yes, when I hear speeches. you talking yeah. about uh, solutions, I'm really curious because I, I'm really eager to know um, what would be your solution then for a country that Rwanda, which has been praised and praised and praised. Okay, thank, thank you. you. And there was another, yeah, that was a lady in, in blue, I think, that I put her to, sorry. Hi, my name is Carmen Gloria Sepulveda. I'm a, I'm a PhD student at the Institute for the Study of the Americas. And I have actually a question, Nathan Donors. You mentioned the fact that uh, so little money is going toward women's empowerment coming from donors and aid. Um, I'm wondering if there is, and what would be the strategy then to hold, for example, OCDE countries, which, by the way, includes some medium, middle income countries, um, 
to increase their, you know, the commitment to fund women's empowerment uh, as part of their effective, uh, aid effectiveness agenda, which has been quite restricted and gender has fallen off very often a bit. Um, rank fencing, indexes, what, what is needed basically, and also what, what does UN Women think of the fact that donors like the Department for International uh, Development here in the UK has stopped uh, investing or giving aid to many countries in Latin America in the couple of last years. Okay, thank you. And there was somebody right at the back that I uh, fingered. I can't remember which one it was now, sorry. So. Hi, um, my name's Jo Holmes, and I'm about to start work with an NGO based in Nigeria focusing on AIDS and HIV um, education and support, and with a particular interest in empowering women to be part of the solution, women infected by the disease. I was just wondering if there was any um, element of, or any part of the agenda with for UN women um, focusing on the impact of AIDS and HIV and what is part of what is the solution or what how that is actually included within the plan. Well, one thing that um, is, hearing you, I I I am um, I have to maybe clarify because when I speak that women are needed in political participation. That doesn't need that, that solves the whole problems of the country, of course. And that is an issue of the country, men and women of each country. And some countries maybe don't have, I mean, because if, for example, I can, I, I haven't, I have mentioned that Rwanda has the biggest, because that's the fact, the truth. I don't know details about how female parliamentarians have been able to pass one bill or another in Rwanda, because in politics, there are so many factors that can uh, happen. And uh, sometimes there can be different issues that can lead to a successful uh, law or not. And for me, laws are one important issue, but never enough, because we have more than 135 countries in the world that have laws uh, against domestic violence, and domestic violence is a worldwide uh, spread uh, epidemic in those countries too. We have more than 80 or more, almost 100 countries who prohibited female genital mutilation, and in those countries, female genital mutilation is performed. So the law is important, but it's not the enough, because female genital mutilation is a social norm, and it's performed by women, not by men. And for women that think they're doing the best for the children. So what we need to think deeply is what else we have to do. We have to change the social norm. We need to change the right passage from child to woman that is performed in many of the African countries because they think they will give their daughters the best possibility of a good marriage. We need to engage boys, and to boys, and I was in Dadaaf, a refugee camp in Kenya next to the Somali uh, frontier where there is a 20-year-old refugee camp. And one of the boys, he was from an NGO who was delivering food for the, for the refugees, had a wonderful t-shirt that he said, I want to marry a woman who is not cat, not circumcised. And I think this is important too, how we change those social norms to give women more possibilities. So I will tell you, uh, there is no recipe on how any, every country tackles poverty and development, but there's also a lot of strategies. And first of all is, political commitment and political will. And that's important thing, and that has to be done by women 
and my man, in parliament, out of parliament, bottoms up too, but also engaging uh, with the international community because uh, there's so many problems that can be solved. And I think, that's my opinion, <laughs> that if you have the political will, you can always create the fiscal space. You can always find some money. Maybe not all the money, not to solve everything, but you can find it. If you fight corruption, you have more money. If you ensure that pay, uh, people pay the taxes, the rich people pay the taxes, you will have the money. So there's lots of things that can be done. And I think the important thing in a country, where, which ever, any country that it is, is to try to build national agreement and consensus on the most important issues that had to be tackled in terms of having the best possibility for all other people. But women in decision-making position is not the magical recipe for anything, but it's necessary. And not every woman are gender sensitive. I have known lots of women who are not gender sensitive. And I'm not lots of women who think that they have to act as a man or even as a hardest man. <laughs> women with mustache, if I may say. <laughs> and I've seen it so many times. Because they feel that if you speak about, I mean, I'm not saying that women should only speak about gender issues. On the contrary. I believe that women, to be able to be respectable politicians, need to speak about economy, need to speak and have ideas about uh, international relationship, need to speak about climate change, about anything. Because women are people with capacities and skills on every issue. But of course, I would like them to be also gender sensitive, to care for their sisters. Because if women don't do it and men don't do it, I mean, we're losing the half of the, all the, half of the capacity of society. So I think there's a lot of things to be done. There are strategies, clear policy strategies to tackle poverty, to tackle, uh, to, to try to produce bigger governance, to try to produce uh, a stable uh, nation and so on. And the only thing is that I think that the best positive way is to try to be part of that process, to see how you can really uh, be a positive force in that process. And I believe that if women really work with that spirit, can be a positive part of that process. Um, Carmen Gloria was asking about the issue of little money was given to women's empowerment, and you mentioned OECD. Uh, I was uh, quoting, not saying it, OECD estimates. Because one of the problems, and in Busan there will be at the end of the year, an aid effectiveness uh, conference, and we need to discuss that. Because one of the things that we have seen from Istanbul now in the least developed uh, uh, countries conference is how come that after 10 years, because it's each 10 years, we see at the Brussels resolution 10 years ago, and we see today, and only three countries graduated from least developed countries. So you have to ask yourself what happened? Did the strategies were wrong? Or what? And one of the things that is very important that has to be analyzed and defined is that in my impression of what I heard there, read, is that there's no alignment between what the recommendations of this conference are and the aid. That is the, this, uh, uh, dedicated to this kind of recommendation. One example, OECD 
estimates show that even though I've mentioned to you that in many countries women are the majority, at least the half, but, uh, but also the majority of the labor force in the agriculture force, uh, agriculture, only 6%, I'm exaggerating, 5.6% of the aid is dedicated to women in the agriculture force. So there is a incredible and terrible incoherence, inconsistency between the reality and where the aid is going. So we need to improve that. And I think that's one of the discussions we will have, again, in every, every uh, conclusion and, and every statement, gender equality, women's power. But when you go to the real facts, things not happening. So those are the kind of things that we need to discuss in terms of how we make a diagnosis, but then the treatment is in the relation to the diagnosis. Otherwise, we're not going to do well, perform well. On terms of... Uh, of uh, decisions of donors not to fund Latin America, here and everywhere, because that's a problem with Latin America. I mentioned before that it, Latin America is a victim of its own success. But it has a problem that we need also as international community to look. Because when you see where poverty is and gender equality and women's empowerment, we, f we see a very complicated situation. Of course, we have the least developed countries, but in terms, in terms of proportions, but in terms of absolute numbers, the major amount of poor and inequalities and disparities is now in middle-income countries. And why? Because countries, middle-income countries have huge populations, as Nigeria, uh, India, and so, <laughs> If you look at average, maybe it's worse compared to the population in other countries. But if you look at millions of women who can be, uh, not only women, but women are usually the more poor, are not in the worst, uh, in the worst developed countries, are all in the middle income. And if you go to the typical analysis on the aid effective uh, uh, agencies, so they will tell you, you are not meeting the requirements. So I think the discussion that will be in Busan has to be a real deep discussion on understanding the complexities of the world we are. If we really want to tackle poverty, and we really want to really be able to say that we are advancing in sustainable development. Because I think we, well, we all know that we work with average, we have a problem. Because average is wonderful for a book, but it's not good for concrete policies. And then in particular with gender issues, that's exactly that. If you have policies, global policies for SMEs, women will always be lagging behind. If you have global policies not considering that you, women usually are the most affected one, it's very complicated. One example, Christ, financial crisis. I have never seen on the G20 statement anything about women. And we know that women not only lose employment like everybody else, but also girls are the first to drop out school when the parents are uh, lost a job, or as our French friend there, when the parents are with HIV AIDS, uh, usually girls had to drop out of school because they have to take care of the children, uh, of, the, of the sisters and brothers. So uh, I think we need to do a much more deep and complex discussion on how we're gonna deal with this world today. But I will mention another thing. We need to discuss also on the trends of population because many of the problems that women are facing today 
are so linked to lack of some policies uh, in terms of family planning or, or sexual reproductive rights. Because if, you, if the world continues the trend, population trends that have today, not only we will have about, in, in 2020, I believe, about 10 billion people in the world, but also it will be the majority of countries that are not rich countries. But if you cross it with another trend, that is that we are living more years, and there is an increasing trend of chronical non-communicable diseases, we will come to this terrible situation that will be more, less richer, and less healthier. And I think that's a lethal combination. And we don't have, we cannot migrate much more because the world will be expanding. Uh, I mean, it cannot expand more than what we have. So I think we have, when we really think on the future of the world, we need to deal with all these issues. How we have uh, population policies that can deal with that. We know if there are family planning, if we could have good uh, uh, services on sexual and reproductive services, maternal mortality will go, will drop dramatically. We have done it in some places. Country have done it. It has dramatically dropped. We know if the, if, if, the, if girls retain school, will drop all these things. So there are so many things we have to do. We have to focus our aid and cooperation on those areas. And finally, the HIV AIDS. There was lots of things that I didn't mention that we will not be doing as leading agencies, but we will be building partnership with other agencies who are the leading ones and who do a wonderful job. I haven't mentioned things that for me are very close to my heart, like health, I'm a medical doctor, like education, because I do believe that education is essential, like migration, migration, the majority are female, and a huge amount are domestic workers. So it's not us, the one who are leading this, but we are working on partnership. Concretely in, in health, we are building partnership with HI, with the WHO, with UNFPA, with UNICEF, and with UNAIDS. In particular in UNAIDS, we are, uh, we with Babatunde and Michelle Sidibe, Babatunde is the new UNFPA, Dr. Babatunde and, and, and Dr. Michelle Sidibe. So we are working, the three of, the, of us, trying to build sort of an alliance on some main issue. And one first main issue is that we cannot, we cannot accept nothing else that universal coverage for IRB treatment. I mean, that has to be an essential issue. We cannot accept, even though it's not, nobody's speaking about this. I mean, for me, women are not only mothers. Women are mothers, of course, and I'm a pediatrician. So for me, I've worked always as Minister of Health and, and afterwards in terms of how to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV. But we cannot stop then, because in some countries they're giving IRB treatment for women while they're pregnant, some months of the children, and then they stop. So what happens with breastfeeding and HIV transmission? What happened to resistant to medicine? And what happened to a woman who will not live and you will have a family destroyed, a child who is orphaned, and a woman who could have lived much more? So we are working, building partnership, making advocacy with them, but also um, trying to, in every area, to, to look at the gender perspective how we ensure that women's rights are well represented there. And in some areas, it's not very easy to identify. Did somebody here think that a Ministry of Public Works should have gender perspective? Probably it's not so clear. 
What's the relationship between building a road and a bridge and women? It is so important because if you build that road, maybe that woman could get to the hospital and give birth and not end with a f child dead and with fistula for, for so many years. And how important it is to build that bridge there where all those rural uh, women livelihoods can ensure access to markets. So I'm just giving some example. Usually it's not in the head. So when we're talking about advocacy with gender perspective, we're not talking only about that's the right thing to do. I mean, we need to include in everything. That's why it's not an issue of the Minister of, 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 of Women or Gender Affairs. It's an issue, cross-cutting issue that has to be included in every policy. So to be ensured that really men and women are, have the rights that they deserve. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. There are so many hands we could be here all night. But unfortunately, we have to finish now because Michelle has another short meeting before she's allowed any food. Uh, now, before I, uh, before I uh, thank her, can I request that you remain in your seats until uh, I, I can escort her out of the theatre so she can get to that meeting? Okay. Uh, I'm sure you will agree with me that, that that was a fascinating speech and also a, a, an absolutely fascinating set of answers to a range of questions. And I would really like to thank you for... Uh, sparing the time because we know how busy you are and we very much appreciate that time. Thank you. Thank you, Director.